Yeah, Prom Sunday. <laughs> I was sitting here in first service going, it's a little light in first service and in second service. I'm like, it's a little light in second service. And someone said, it was prom last night. Hey, who, um, who, went to, who went to prom and showed up here student-wise? Any students that went to prom? Yeah. All right. Hey, what, I see four, right? There's three of you. Three that went. One, two. How many? Raise your hand again. Okay, it's us and graders in the next couple weeks, okay? I'll take you out to graders for, for showing. They like show up on Sunday. That's hard, you know, going to prom and then showing up at church on Sunday morning. Oh, special crown for you in heaven right there. I'll tell you what. Hey, um, before, I, before we do this, uh, get into the um, series and our sermon, uh, I want to have a family meeting, okay? Okay? Family meeting? Here's what we're going to talk about. Money. In a good way. You're going to enjoy this money talk. Okay, over the next six months... We are going to finish out the majority of what we call the Grace Impact Center. When we moved here, uh, boy, it was probably nine years ago. We bought this entire property, um, about almost six acres. It cost about $1.8 million to buy the property. And since that time, we've been renovating all these buildings. We've renovated this building. We, we, We keep renovating uh, we've renovated the offices and the houses and the thrift store, and we knock buildings down, and we've renovated half of the, of the Grace Impact Center, not the way we wanted to do it, but just to get it occupiable. And you've seen some of the changes over the last even five or six months in the Grace Impact Center. We've renovated it once again and given it a, given it a facelift. looks really good. Well, what we want to do now is we pretty much want to nail this down. The front section where the, where the students play like basketball, the, the multi-purpose section, we want to finish that section off, redo the floors, redo the walls, put pads on the walls, all that kind of thing on the front section, and also move to the back, which is the largest open section in the building. We've put so much, we've probably put $1.2 million or more into that building already. So we're at the home stretch. We're not talking about a lot to finish this off. What we want to do is we want to put a new floor down in that gym area, where, which is the front section of the building, all the way to the end, where you can play basketball. You guys, a lot of you have been in there. You've seen it. It's got that ugly green carpet in there, okay? That comes up. We put a new floor down, a multi-purpose floor, where you can play soccer and basketball and street hockey and skateboarding, whatever you want to do in there. It's a really nice floor with a pad underneath it. The, uh, the roofers are coming. They've come already to fix the office. But we want to seal the rest of the front section of that, the roof, so there's no leaks in there. And then we'll put a new floor down in the front. Um, we'll put a, uh, a new floor down in the back and renovate that whole back section so it looks really nice, not just... Not just, hey, not bad for a manufacturing plant, but I mean looks really nice. And what we want to do is we're going to start on the outside. Um, We have someone in our church who is really uh, giving us a great deal on on fixing and and we can't repave it right now because we'll do that a couple years, but we can fix the, the, the bad spots in the parking lot, reseal it with that black sealer, look really nice, and restripe it, okay? So we'll do that in the next couple of months, and then we'll move inside. You know that really ugly section down at the end where it's like, it's like all concrete, we threw the concrete down there, and it's all nasty looking? That actually is going to be the nicest looking area outside in our building in the next couple of months, because we're going to put a nice deck out there with landscaping, and that's going to be the new entrance to the back section of the Grace Impact Center. The front section, here's the bad news. Okay, The bad news is it's going to cost about $130,000 to finish it off, front and back. And I'm talking, when I say the back, 
If you cut the building in half, I'm talking about the right-hand side of the building where the, it's really open, where we have that multi-purpose, where you can play soccer and everything. The left-hand side, we're not going to finish off until probably starting two, uh, 2012. But here's what we're going to do. That's the bad news is 130 grand. But here's the good news. Someone's already matched up to $20,000 for the front section. It'll cost $40,000 to finish that off and put new basketball hoops in there. I mean nice basketball hoops. Soccer goals, new floor, padding on the wall. It will look really, really good in there. Not just, eh, so-so, really good. Forty grand finishes off. We have 20000 in hand already. All right? that if every, for every dollar we put up, someone's going to match it up to $20,000, gets us to $40,000, we finish that off. Our goal is to have that finished by mid-July, if we can, latest, mid to, mid to late July. Now, the back section, we have other good news. Someone else has put up $40,000 matching for the back section. And so all we need is to come up with another $40,000 or $50,000 to finish off that back section. I think another fifty dollars will do it. And that will give us, we'll, we'll actually have a soccer field with a turf field back there with a wall that goes around it and nets that go up. And so we can use that entire facility. And then, we'll, again, we'll go to the other side in 2012. The other side, if we're looking at the building in the back, we met, we met a couple of months ago. We talked about what can we do with this facility? What we're going to do with the left-hand side in the back is put a preschool in there, put a school of the arts in there. This one I'm really pumped about. Um, we have so much talent in this church, and we're going to build a school of the arts. The preschool will go from the morning till 3, 3.30 or so, and then the school of the arts will start after school and go till the night, until 9 or 10 o'clock at night. We have people working on a business plan right now to put that together. And also, first and foremost, that will then become our children's area. So you're talking a gigantic area that's in some places two stories there'll be two stories tall um, that will be for our children on Sunday mornings and then during the week it'll be a preschool and also a school of the arts but right now here's what I need you I need you to be thinking about I, I, I personally in the leadership of the church does not want to bother with a capital campaign I don't have the energy for it I don't even want to talk about it a capital campaign if we have someone putting up 40,000 to match in the back and 20,000 in the front what we'd like to do is just, I just want to get up and talk to you and say, we're at the home stretch. Let's sacrifice a little beyond our normal giving. And if we, can, if we come up with $70,000, we're, we're home free. We're done. We end up having a nice parking lot, the landscaping outside, the inside the front section is completely finished, the back section is halfway finished. And here's, here's what's incredible. Here's why I really, I'm going to encourage you to, to, to sacrifice a little bit and make this happen. Okay. We will have between 750 and 1,000 people a week coming onto this campus to use that building. We have soccer teams already that are saying, if you build it, we will come. We want the space. We'll rent it from November till April, okay? Four to five nights a week, three to four hours a day, okay, for all that time. Now, if you st- I'm not going to give you numbers because I don't have the exact numbers, but I, I have them in my head. If you start doing the numbers, that adds up. Okay, to, from a rental standpoint, but forget the rental for a second. 750 to 1,000 people coming onto this campus from from Monday through Saturday. What a, we talk about outreach to our community? They'll be coming here. What a phenomenal opportunity for us as a church to come up with ways to reach out to those people who are coming right on our campus. We did we did a Zumba class. We had a couple of families coming to church because we have a Zumba class. There's about 25 or 30 people in the Zumba class. 
Imagine how many people will start filling into the church when they're here that many days a week. And there's 750 to 1,000 people coming on campus where we have staff on campus who will be ministering to them and volunteers. We won't bother them, but you know, you give out water bottles. You just try to meet people's needs, their felt needs. Uh, we, you invite them to certain things if they'd like to come. You have opportunities that are out there up in posters and flyers. It'll be a great way for us to minister to people in our own community because they'll all be coming here. And I said 750 to 1,000. There's 700 people in one soccer club that want to use the building. One soccer club. That's not including baseball, the other soccer clubs, anything else, volleyball that we rent it out for or use it for. We'll use it, but we can also think of this. We can have men's leagues. We can have women's leagues. We can have upward basketball. We can do youth, uh, you know, 11 at 10, 11 o'clock at night, the students out there just being able to use that facility. After football games, we'll have the largest room for students in Mason, 40,000 square feet of pure fun for our students to come after football games. This will be the greatest evangelistic tool that we have, that we've ever had um, on this campus. So I want to encourage you, we're going to be reaching out to our community. It will, from a financial standpoint, really be helpful for the church. Because again, six, five days a week or so, four hours a day, three to four hours a day, um, that's a large space. Uh, so even per day, that's going to really help financially for the church. So I want you, there's a grid. What we're doing is we're breaking the floor down, both floors, into grids. And we're breaking it down into feet into yards, into blocks, into half blocks. A block is, we're saying 17 by 14 is a block. That's the way the concrete is broken up in there. You can buy a foot for, a, for $8. The students can be involved in that. A yard for $72. Uh, half a block is $950, and a block is $1,900. And what we need to do, I'd like to do it this morning to tell you the truth, if we can get that, we can call the, the, the company that will put the floor down, and in two days it'll be finished. As soon as the roof goes on, they come in, boom, it's finished, and we have a brand new, brand new area that we can begin to use for ministry here at Grace Chapel. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal opportunity for our church. This takes us to a new level, to a different place. So again, I, I don't want to come up here like Oliver and Bay and, you know, whatever, but I want to say this, dig deep, my brothers. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I want to encourage you this morning to just pray about it and think about it. I, I really don't want to put money into a capital campaign and take our time and posters all around and blah, blah, blah. It's $70,000. I know it's a lot of money in this economy, but it's not overwhelming. And every, every dollar you put in is matched, okay, will be matched, which will get us there very quickly. Um, if we, since we have that 20,000, the front matching and 40,000, the back matching. Okay. So I just wanted to have this kind of family meeting here. The, there's a, there's a big poster outside. It's a whiteboard. It's all gridded out and you can, you see a block there. You'll see a, a, um, a half a block, a yard, little, little teeny spaces for feet, write your name in there, whatever you want to do, just write your name on the whiteboard and that becomes your space. And then what we're going to do is we're going to grid both floors and you're going to be able to go in there when we're, before we lay the floor down and write your name in a scripture verse or whatever else. Remember we did it out here? That was a lot of fun. We're going to do the same thing back there. So 30 years from now, they tear the floor up and we put a new floor down. Uh, they'll see your name and, you know, and your scripture verse. That's just fun. But that'll be your little section that, you, that you're buying uh, to help us finish off the floor. All right? That's how we're going to do it. Does that sound good? All right. Good, good. All right. Yeah, you can clap all you want. I'm ex- I am... I bought a half a block so far, um, and a little selfish reason. I have a seven-year-old, Josh, 
And I can't wait to get a basketball league started for him, that age group. You know, we're going to basically section off our little, we're going to take up a couple hours there for, for seven-year-olds and stuff like that, because I'm the senior pastor and I can do that. And we're going to have a, just teasing. But think about all the fun. With my, I have grandkids that can use that facility. I have a son who can use that facility. You have kids. You have friends. This is going to be a great, great opportunity for us to be here on this campus seven days a week, hanging out and having a really, really good time. All righty, we're in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to start off with telling you a little bit of story here. I was driving a pizza tower uh, coming from a youth meeting. This was about 16 years ago. And we would meet at someone's house, and after we, had, we were at their house or at the church, we would then drive to Pizza Tower. Um, it was one of the only restaurants up on Fields Earth, believe it or not. This was a long, long time ago before they built everything up. And Pizza Tower was kind of our hangout. And we would, you know, get a bunch of cars and follow each other there and pile in the car and take the students up there. I was leading the pack, and we were turning off onto um, Mesa Montgomery Road. And as I pulled out, I was, it was easy for me. There was no one there. But the student behind me, Paula, she wasn't looking. She was just following me. And so she pulled out as well. And there was a car coming. And the person who was coming had to slam their brakes on. And they were livid. I could see them as I was driving. I could see them hit their brakes. And their face, the guy's face was just red. He started banging on his steering wheel. He whipped it around and he followed both me and Paula. He was really following her. He had no idea we were together. But he was following her up um, Mesa Montgomery Road, down, down to Fields Earl Road where Pizza Tower is. We pulled in there and this guy was just, he was almost out of his mind with frustration. He, he got out of the car and he just, oh, his anger was overwhelming. Now, the question is, if you're in my situation, how do you react to that? The guy's furious. He, got, he almost got in an accident. He is ticked. He is screaming. He gets out of his car. How do you react to that situation? Okay, now you're on the phone with your insurance company. And you're telling your insurance company, here's what happened. And I, you, know, you want to make a claim, a homeowner's claim. And the insurance company guy says, yeah, I see your policy here. As long as it happened during this last storm, you're okay. But you know that it happened before the last storm. It was pre-existing. It happened before that. But if you tell the insurance guy that, you have to pay the whole thing. It's a lot of money to pay. If you tell him that, you're in trouble. You're, it's, it's all you. What are you, you going to do? Are you going to lie to the insurance company? You're going to tell them the truth? What are you going to do in that situation? Those bum insurance companies, you know? What are you, how are you going to handle that? You're going online, minding your own business. You get online, you know, you click on there and, you know, you Google whatever else. And all of a sudden, as you're going on, an ad pops up. And there's a woman standing there, kind of not dressed too appropriately. And she's inviting you to come to her website to see more pictures of her. Do you click? Do you not click? I mean, what, what, what do you do in these situations? These are just a few decisions that you and I have to make every single day. How do we respond to the guy who's, who's lost his temper? Do we respond in anger back to him? Do we match his anger with anger to shut him down and make sure that he's not going to go and do something rude or obnoxious, say mean things to this teenage girl? Do we lie to the insurance company? 
Those insurance companies, why not? You know what I mean? They take advantage of us all the time. They never want to pay up when it's time to pay up. You've been paying for 20 years on this policy. And now they're telling you whatever. Should you, should you lie to the insurance company? Do we accept this woman's, uh, you know, her, her, her invitation to come onto her website and, and look at more pictures? See, the book of Proverbs helps us answer those questions and so many other questions that you and I have to deal with every single day. How do we handle the guy who's lost his temper? Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. What happened was the guy jumps out of the car and he is livid. I I knew he was coming, so I jumped out and I kind of met him halfway to Paula's car. And I stopped him and I said, you have every right to be upset. I'm telling you, get out of my way. She almost got me killed. And I said, I know she's really upset about it. She was in the car with her head down crying. And so he's yelling. I said, you know what? You're completely correct. I was going first. She followed me. She wasn't looking. She's in the wrong and she knows it. I know it too. I take responsibility. I should have told him to be more careful. And he kept on. And as the time went on, I was calm. I was gentle. I was not aggressive. And our tone of voice, ultimately, he came down and matched my tone of voice. And he finally got calm. He said to me, I'm just get so frustrated because six months ago, my son was almost killed in a car accident. These teenagers are always whipping around. They're not looking where they're going. He almost died. He was in the hospital for weeks. And I just want to be able to. And what he said was, after a while, he said, can I just go and talk to her? And I said, sure. And we went together. And he said, she rolled the window down. She was crying. She goes, he goes, I'm fine. He goes, he explained the situation with his son how he was just upset that he didn't want to see her get in the same situation or cause accidents in someone else's life. But he was really calm, and he started acting like a dad to her instead of a livid, crazy person who just wanted to rip in because he was so angry. A gentle answer turns away wrath. What do you say to the insurance company? Proverbs chapter 24, 28 says, Do not deceive with your lips. Don't lie. Don't be a liar. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, those insurance companies, they owe. Last time they ripped me off, so this time, the and Proverbs says, don't lie. They may have ripped you off. That's their responsibility. But what's your responsibility? Should you click on that website with all the, the, those, those, that website with the pictures? Proverbs chapter 23, verses 26 to 28 says this, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes keep to my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit, and a wayward wife is a narrow well. Like a bandit, she lies in wait and multiplies the unfaithful among men. We're continuing our series this morning. It's called Wise Up, a spiritual walk through the book of Proverbs. I love the book of Proverbs. It has been a part of my life and an important part of my life since the very beginning of my Christian walk when I was 17 years old. I didn't grow up with a dad, didn't know what it meant to be a good father and be a good husband. And one of the first things I wanted to know from the Bible is how do I, what is it to be a man? What does it mean to be a man of God? Proverbs helped me in so many ways to help me become a a good husband and a good father and a good man, a good person when it comes to living my life according to his word. So I had to ask myself as I was reading through this, I read through the book of Proverbs, why is it that so few pastors will preach on the book of Proverbs? And I'm not talking about what we're doing going through uh, for the next couple of months, going through all the themes of the book of Proverbs. I'm just talking about even using Proverbs at all. It's very rare that you see pastors using the book of Proverbs. Well, let me, let me give you a couple reasons why. Let me share three reasons, because this is such a, a wonderful, wonderful book. Three reasons why I think people avoid it. 
Proverbs is filled with straightforward sayings about many of the common mistakes that we make every single day. It's filled with them. And see, preaching like that, preaching truth, makes people uncomfortable. So if you get straightforward with people, they're going to be uncomfortable with that. And so preachers will try to avoid it because they don't want to make people uncomfortable because if you get uncomfortable, maybe you're going to leave the church. Take, for example, the different circumstances I just kind of laid out to you. You know, the, the, all the, the, this person getting upset and all this kind of stuff. What it does is it makes you think about the decisions that you've made in the past. Like if I jumped out of the car and just laid into him, um, you know, and, and got all frustrated, we got into a confrontation or whatever else, I'd think, look back and go, boy, that really wasn't a mature thing to do as a pastor, to match the guy's anger with anger. I was going to let him mess with one of my students, and I was going to, you know, I would look back and say, wow, Proverbs, you know, here's what Proverbs taught. Now I've got to look back on my own life and see some of the mistakes that I made. It's also, you have to look, you start looking at your present life and asking yourself, you may be sitting here this morning going, what a great morning to come. I had it all worked out with the insurance company in my mind, you know what I mean? They had cheated me in the past. I was going to cheat them here. It was even Stephen. It worked out real well. And now you're telling me, now Proverbs is telling me that I shouldn't lie. And then also I'll have to make decisions in the future. And now I have the information to make the decisions. And some people just don't want to have that much information because we have to make tough decisions. And you know you're going to come to a point where you're going to have to make some of these tough decisions and you're going to know what to do. Sounds funny, but not everyone wants to hear exactly what to do. People don't like to be convicted. Ignorance is bliss. If I don't read it, if we don't talk about it, then I'm kind of safe because I'm kind of ignorant of how I'm supposed to handle some of these situations. And if I can just come up with the answer in my own mind and justify it in my own mind, it all works out for everyone, especially for me. Right? Something else I realize is that people like to react emotionally in given situations. They like it. They really don't want to talk logically or rationally or reasonably or biblically. They just want to go through life. And when a situation comes up, they want to emotionally react to it. But the book of Proverbs does something for us. It gives us what I call the principle of prior choice. The principle of prior choice says decide beforehand what you're going to do in a certain situation before that situation occurs. But see, that goes, it flies in against of our natural human reaction that we just want to emotionally get charged and, and, and do what we want emotionally because I'm going to live by my feelings. And Proverbs says, you know what? Decide beforehand what you're going to do in a given situation before that situation comes up. And that helps me avoid an emotional response or poor decision in the moment. You see, because people who emotionally respond to things without giving, without looking at Proverbs and the wisdom and guidance and knowledge and understanding that Proverbs offers, what they do is they get in a situation and they react. But here's the problem with just reacting. That's where a lot of people go to prison because they just react. They got angry. They just they went, they went along with their emotions and got angry. Or they, they got into the car when they, shouldn't get, when they shouldn't have gotten into the car. They said something in the heat of the moment. They should not have said that, that terribly affected a relationship with someone else. Because we're living by our emotions. You know, in my office sometimes I'll sit down with people and people will want to emotionally engage. And I will calmly just say, well, let's talk through it for a second. Let's take one point at a time. Well, blah, 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 blah. Okay, now let's stop. Hold on. Now let's look at that situation and let's walk through it logically, rationally, reasonably. You know, just use our... And people sometimes, a lot of people love it. 
lot of people, some people don't like it at all. What they want to do is emotionally rattle off all these things and so you forget half of what they said and then walk out and I told so-and-so. I don't get a lot of that. Don't think I'm in my office getting pounded all the time. But what happens is in those confrontations, that's what people want to do and walk away and say, see, I told him instead of sitting down and saying, okay, you're upset about this. Let's talk this through. Whose responsibility was that? Did the person really say that? Is that how they said it? How should you respond in that situation? People like to emotionally react to things, but what happens in those situations is you get yourself in a lot of trouble, and Proverbs wants to help us avoid that. The second criticism is this. Some criticize this book because they, they say it contains rules, rules that are more general and experiential. And they feel that these rules don't always work in every case, and so they don't like that. You know, these are rules. The Proverbs is a bunch of rules that, you know, it's laid, they're laid out for us. And, and they don't really like the, the, these because they, they feel like they don't every, they always work in every case. And so it frustrates them. I'll give you an example. Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. You've heard that before. Now, most of us would say that's a nice general rule that usually works. But every single person in this room knows someone who's trained up a child in the way they should go, maybe you, and when they got older, they departed. And so you're like, wait a second here. And pastors know that too. So pastors will, instead of, instead of digging a little deeper and finding out what some verses actually mean, and I get an understanding, they, they just avoid it. They want to avoid that because if I tell you, if I preach on that verse, and then all of a sudden I got six to ten people going, wait, 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 that didn't, I know someone who whatever, that doesn't, that doesn't sound, that doesn't ring true in all cases. And so they figure, man, I don't, I don't want to do that because that, I, I, let's just avoid, let's just avoid dealing with that completely. Now I have responses to all these, but we'll keep going through. Third, some would say that Proverbs consists primarily of secular advice gleaned from life experience. And it's not, it's not really um, God-centered. It's not as God-centered as they want it to be. Because you think about it. I mean, think, just, let's just think about it for a moment. What's so Christian about a gentle answer turns away wrath? Or not lying to the insurance company or someone else? Or not, not letting lust control your whole life? Most people would agree with those things in our culture. Didn't have to, that's not, you could say that's not even that spiritual. Everybody kind of agree with those things. So I guess the question is, after those criticisms, why then preach on the book of Proverbs? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and let me address each one of those criticisms one at a time. We'll go through them one at a time. Is Proverbs convicting? Absolutely. Yes. I admit it. Proverbs will convict you in your heart. Absolutely. But how is that any different than any other part of the Bible? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. How is that different? How is Proverbs convicting our hearts with what it says any different than the rest of Scripture? Being rebuked or corrected, I understand, is not fun when it's happening to you. I totally admit that. But my friends... We need to be willing to accept that kind of, um, I don't want to say, I guess, constructive criticism, that kind of correction in our lives. We need, wouldn't you say, other, not you personally, because of course you don't need any correction or criticism or, or, or you know, anything like that, but wouldn't you say that most of the people around you, isn't it good for someone to be challenging them in their lives with spiritual growth, with 
you know, rebuking and correcting and training. Wouldn't you see the guy right next to you? Don't you think he needs to have a little bit of a, you know, rebuking, correcting and training and righteousness? No, not you, for example, but your wife, for sure. You know what I'm saying? Um, we would all agree to that. I mean, we need that. Yes, is it hard in the moment to hear it? Sure, it's hard in the moment to hear it. Sure, it's hard to read something and realize, gosh, I am doing that all the time. But the reality is, my friends, we need, we need that in our lives. We need that to help us. How else are we going to change? How else are we going to grow if we don't have scripture and other people around us reminding us of areas of our lives where we need to change? So if Proverbs convicts us, and it's also helpful and important to our spiritual and emotional maturity, we need that for emotional and spiritual maturity. My goodness, who not it the most annoying thing in the world when someone acts a certain way when they're two and then, and then you know, 12 and then 22 and 52 and 82? They act the exact same selfish way for all those years, never changing, never emotionally or spiritually growing. Proverbs will help us grow emotionally and spiritually. Let's look at the second objection. When we read the book of Proverbs, it often seems jumbled and haphazard. That's what people will say. It's jumbled and haphazard. That's not really the case, though. That is not really the case. If you study the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is carefully arranged throughout. And I'll get into more detail as we go on here. But it's not jumbled and haphazard. This helps us deal with the general rules criticism. Let me explain. Like the rest of the Bible, the book of Proverbs should not be read one verse at a time, taking one verse at a context or another verse. It shouldn't, it's not meant to be read one verse at a time and just kind of, you know, pulling things out of context. When you read the Bible that way, verses seem to, um, seem to be overstated sometimes or confusing to you. You read, why, why would it say that? You know, you pull, you're reading through, you know, here's how I'm going to read my Bible this morning. Oh, let's see, Lord, speak to me. You know what I mean? You ever done that? If you say no, you're lying. You're lying to your pastor. You know you've done that. God, I'm really having a hard time. Oh, you know, woohoo, you know, and, you know. <laughs> let's see, Ram and Father Amalekite, you know, it's like, what, Lord? I don't know what you're talking about. Let me try it again, you know, New Testament, you know what I'm saying? That's not how we're supposed to study the Bible. And people read the book of Proverbs that way and go, man, it kind of seems overstated and a little crazy and haphazard. I don't know what's going on here. The mouth of a fool invites a beating. I like that verse. You know what I'm saying? That's what it says in the book of Proverbs. It says that the mouth of a fool invites a beating. So all you teenagers, next time some fool said to beat the tar at him. You know what I'm saying? Because it's biblical. It's biblical. You have backing now. The mouth of a fool. He invited the beating. Why did you beat him? He invited it right there. The Bible. God said the mouth invites a beating. I just beat him because he deserved it. Invited it. Asked for it. I got scripture to back it up too. That's not the way the Bible is meant to be read. When we study the Bible or we analyze any verse of Scripture, a particular verse, we need, we need to look at the context of the verse. We need to look at the verses that surround it. We need to look at the, thematically how it's laid out. What are the themes? What are the thematic verses that set the stage for the rest of the book? What are the, the, the themes within the book of Proverbs that set the stage for us to read the rest of the book and put all these different things that we're reading? They're not haphazard. They go into different categories. So what are the categories and how do they all fit together? When we do that, we find that, we find that those verses that look to be overstated or kind of... Um, 
uh, not, not crazy, but, you know, like confusing, are clarified by other verses. The mouth of a fool invites a beating. Yeah, well, if you read it like that and take it out of context, then you could do some, da- some damage. But when you read it within the context, then you understand what it's saying. It's not inviting you to beat people up who are foolish. There's a context, and, it, and, the, and the context explains the verse. Let me give you a good example, okay? See, because Proverbs, the Proverbs, before I move into that, Proverbs are not intended to stand alone, like I said, to be picked out. The entire book is basically a composition of intimately related verses. Intimate related verses, okay? So not, don't pick them out one at a piece. They are a, they're, they're composed of intimate related, intimately related verses. So I'm going to give you an example. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, if, you're, if you basically take that, okay, take it individually, these verses seem to contradict each other. Answer not a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool. These verses back to back contradict each other. One says that we should answer a fool, and the other says not to answer a fool. You see, in this case, the writer places them right next to each other to make the point that he is not stating a general rule in either case. He's not making, he's, he's making this a real good point for us here. He's not stating a general rule, an absolute general rule, in either case. Here's the point. Sometimes it's necessary to answer a fool so the fool doesn't think he's wise. Sometimes it's necessary not to answer a fool to protect yourself. Why even engage this person? You want to protect yourself. Neither are wrong. They're both right. They're both true. They're not contradicting each other. He's not making a case, an absolute case in either place, a general rule in either case. See, the wise woman or wise man will, make the, will discern between both cases. When you're in a situation with a fool, should I respond to the fool or should I not respond to the fool? A wise man or woman discerns between yes or no in those situations. This is why I'm so excited to study the book of Proverbs with you. Because what the book of Proverbs is going to do is help us discern what we should do in certain situations. Should I give money to this homeless person? Of course, always give money to homeless people. That's not true. Use discernment. What if the person takes the money? They're a lazy slugger we talked about a month ago. What if the person takes the money and buys alcohol and buys drugs and kills themselves that night because they were right on the edge and you gave them the last five bucks in order for them to go buy what they needed to buy to kill themselves? You need to use discernment. Should I give money to this person? There's a lot of people out there who need the money. But you need to, the Proverbs will help us discern who we should give the money to and who we shouldn't give the money to. How do I handle my, my boss is just ripping on me when he's laying me out? How do I handle it in that situation? Do I, do I get defensive and attack back and let this person talk to me like that? How do I handle those situations? Should, what, what should I say to my child about this social or moral situation? When my friends are gossiping about another friend who's not there, what do I do? Should I go into business with this person over here or should I not go into business with them? Should I still be hanging around with this group of friends since they're engaging in this kind of behavior or should I not? You know, because if I don't, if I just defriend them in a sense, if I don't still hang around with them, who's going to be an influence in their lives? Or maybe their, their influence is really pulling me too far and I need to step away because I'm not strong enough to stand under the pressure and I'm becoming more like them. These are all discernment. This is all discernment. Something we are lacking in our culture, something we are lacking 
lacking in our churches as a whole. I love the book of Proverbs. It's going to help us in all these areas. The book of Proverbs will help guide us, navigate us through life. It provides wisdom for our everyday lives. How do I handle it? Here's an answer. We need to realize something. Proverbs, and I'm going to come back to this now, Proverbs are short statements of wisdom that makes a point. Okay, short statements of wisdom that that make a point. Proverbs is not trying to capture or summarize all truth on a particular subject. That's not what it's trying to do. It's not trying to capture all truth on one particular subject. Proverbs is is not a book of general rules that sometimes kind of holds true. But like all scripture, and listen to this, like all scripture, it consists of carefully arranged statements that together communicate truth. Carefully arranged statements that together as a whole communicate truth. We should also consider that sometimes our interpretations of what Proverbs says is not true. It may not, it may not be true. Let me give you, let me give you an example. Um, train up a child, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go when he's old, he will not depart from well, some people just basically think to themselves, that has to mean that if I train my child, if I give my child scripture and I tell them what to do, when they're old, they will stick with it. I don't think that's what it means. I think Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 has, means to, to train up your child means to go with the natural bent of your child. What, is their nat- what are their natural tendencies? Study your child. Be a student of your child. Understand what their gifts and talents are. Understand, are they a leader or are they a follower? Are they aggressive or are they more passive? What is the natural bent of my child? I have a seven-year-old now, Joshua. I study my son. I, I am going to, I'm going to go with the natural bent. I'm going to train my child up by their natural bent. What are his gifts and abilities? What does he enjoy doing? I'm going to mold him according to what God has put in his heart, according to who God has made him to be. When I do that to a child, when, when, I, when I train up Joshua in the way he should go, he will not depart from it. Why? Why is that? Because you are guiding them to become the person that God created them to be because you are helping them fulfill the purpose that God has for them in their lives, not the purpose that you have for them in their lives. There is a difference in parenting. There's a big difference. That sheds new light on this verse. Sometimes before we criticize, before we just throw, how could God do that? Or how could God say that? Or how could let, I don't understand that. Close my Bible, Right? People get angry. They read the Old Testament. I don't see why God allows this to happen. Or I don't see God could do that. And instead of understanding the context or history, uh, how could God wipe out a whole group of people? Uh, maybe because he, you should have read like four, you know, four books before up to that point where he gave them 400 years to repent and there wasn't one person left who had any good in them whatsoever. So after 400 years, God says, enough's enough. We don't have that context, so therefore... You know, we're frustrated because we can't believe God would do such. There's context to everything. You can't just read the Bible out of context and then get upset about it. And sometimes this is a great way that before we criticize, we need to study. The third objection is that Proverbs, Proverbs contains advice that is basically secular generalizations taken from our experience. And what they do is they look and they say, well, the, 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 word, the word God and Lord is used less frequently in the book of Proverbs. 
So my goodness, if the word God and Lord are used less frequently, then it's not, it's not as, as God-centered as it should be. It's not as spiritual as it should be. It's a lot, of, a lot of generalized advice that we get from our everyday life experiences because they use Lord and God less times, whatever. But here's the reality. God and Lord are used about three times in, 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 in each chapter there. So it's not like they're not used at all. The word, the word God and the, use, and the word Lord are used often, but maybe not as often as some people would like it to be used on average, but it's used three times per chapter on average. Now, before I jump into my main response to that, let me quickly ask you, because it says what my, their point is it contains advice that's basically secular, secular generalizations that are taken from our experience. According to a biblical worldview, is the word secular even should, even, should the word secular even be used in a biblical worldview? No, no. In a Christian worldview, you have sacred and you have, say it again. Yeah, yeah, yay, okay. No, I'm happy, I'm so happy. You don't have secular, okay? You have sacred and you have sinful, okay? Secular has no part in a Christian worldview. God's not confused about the gray areas of life, okay? He's not confused at all. Those who hold to a secular sacred worldview are flawed in their theology. It's just a flaw. Playing baseball, soccer, or basketball is not a secular activity. It's a sacred activity, unless you're cheating, and then you're a sinner, which doesn't make the sport secular. It makes you a sinner, and it's still sacred before God. God loves football. I'm sorry. We're creating the image of God. Just, let's just use logic here for a second, okay? He loves football. He, he made us in his image. He's got to love football. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, so, so football is sacred. Let's say it together. Football is sacred. It is. Okay, it is. Now, here's where, here's where we go off a little bit. Sometimes you, you start praying for your team to win. You're like, Lord God in heaven, we're 0-6. Another year, just one win. They're 7 they're, they're five and one What would it make a difference to their fans? Help me, Lord. Just one Super Bowl, I pray in Jesus' name. You know what I'm saying? It's not going to work. God's not going to. Uh, I don't think he's going to. Well, we need one, one Super Bowl, Lord, here in Cincinnati. That's all we're asking. I'm a pastor. I'm a child after your own heart. Come on, just one Super Bowl. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm getting off track here. But, um, yeah, amen, right? Come on, Bengals fans. Let's pray hard. <laughs> oh, where was I? Um, no, I mean, that's, you know, we're, that's not going to, God, God is, God loves sports. God is, they're, they're sacred to him. There's no secular sacred thing. Where did that come from? A Plato philosophy, okay, that has permeated the church, is crept into the church, but is not a part of a biblical worldview. You don't gauge God-centeredness by the frequency of the use of the word God or Lord. Instead, here's what we should do. We should have an inter- what you should figure out what is the interpretive key of the whole entire book. There is specific. What is the interpretive key? What is the foundation on which everything else is laid in the book of Proverbs? And we find that answer. There is an answer. We find the answer. It's in the very beginning. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The entire book of Proverbs is built on learning to be wise and knowledgeable. All knowledge, all truth 
begins with the fear of the Lord. You take away the fear of the Lord and wisdom and knowledge have no, have no meaning whatsoever in the, in the context here, in this biblical context. And I would say this biblical context is all that matters because it's God's context. So if we don't have the fear of the Lord, then wisdom, knowledge, discernment, all those things are, have no context. So how much more godly can that be? The fear of the Lord is the foundation. Everything else in the book is built on the fear of the Lord. They don't need to use God and Lord more than three times in each chapter in order to build that kind of foundation. It's God-centered. It's as God-centered as you can get. So this verse lays out the foundation of the book. All Proverbs are united and built on the fear of the Lord. Is God going to correct us, my friends, in our lives when we're doing wrong? Yes, he is. We talk, we're going to talk about the fear of the Lord some other time. But the fear of the Lord is not you ducking lightning bolts. God's going to get me. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. The fear of the Lord is, is a respect and awe of God. Is God going to correct us? Sure he is. Will he deal with our compromises that we make with the world? Yeah, he's going to. And he's going to use the book of Proverbs to bring us back to truth. This is such an incredible book. He's going to use the book of Proverbs to bring us back to that truth. Proverbs will teach us how to live in two ways as we close out here. Two ways on how the book of Proverbs will teach us how to live. The book of Proverbs provides us with a description of what, what a, a life devoted to God looks like. What is, a devoted to, what is a life devoted to God look like? The book of Proverbs will help you discern what a life devoted to God looks like, as well as instruct and advise us how to live that kind of life. Here, here's the bottom line. The bottom line is Proverbs deals with our day in and day out lives, showing us how to implement a life devoted to God. What does it look like? What does it look like to be a godly man or woman? What does it look like to be a godly junior high or high school student? What does it look like? And then how do I live out a life devoted to God? In, in, uh, in, Romans, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer up your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That is God's desire for us, that we would offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, that we would live a life of devotion to him. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, will help us do just that. I'm excited. This next few months is going to be excited, exciting. I'm telling you, you've been asking questions for years in your mind. Why this? And how am I supposed to do that? I don't understand this. And am I supposed to do this? Or am I, how am I supposed to deal with that? Or uh, this relationship here? Proverbs can answer almost every question that you have when it comes to relationships and how you live your life and what it means to be devoted to God. So many questions you've had for years are going to be answered because it hits such a gamut, such a large gamut a large area of knowledge. This is going to be an exciting journey. Let's bow our heads. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity we have to come together, Lord, and just study your word. I pray, dear God, that each one of us would, would use this time over the next few months to, to read through the book of Proverbs over and over and over again till we know it 
till we remember it, till we understand it, until we apply it to our lives. Help us to do that, Lord God. Give us discernment. When this series is over, may we be more discerning on how to handle the difficult situations that we face every day of our lives, now and in the future. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. As you go out, that board is up there, that grid is up there. If you want to sign up right now, you can do that. There's flyers out there, there's information, there's examples of what the floor is going to look like. Check it out. Go over there and just check it out.